Welcome to the podcast for the North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. Now let us turn to this week's scripture and sermon, and let us begin with a prayer. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything worthy of praise, let us meditate upon these things. Amen. Good morning. I'm the Reverend Beth Waltmath, and it's good to be with you in worship again this morning. Today I'm going to be talking about power. And I wanted to take a moment to lift up the power of presence, companionship, and prayer. This is a power that the church has held on to for centuries, and it is a power that my family has benefited from in the last week. As we were held up um, while my daughter had another surgery to help reconstruct her airway, I particularly wanted to lift up um, the power of the presence of a good friend of ours and a mutual friend with many of us, um, Reverend Shelley Latham, who accompanied me and my daughter to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It was still a hard trip, but it was full of joy and comfort um, because of Shelley's presence. So I wanted to honor that and the many ways that we can access our power as we look at some more difficult ways that we as human beings relate to power today. If you'll join me in the prayer for illumination and the scripture reading. O Holy One, whose presence is with us always, help us to hear the power of your words, the power of your calling, and the power of your love as we reflect on our own experiences in this world and our own calling to bring our power of our love and our justice to each other. Amen. Our reading comes from John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Holy Word, Holy Wisdom. Thanks be to God. This week, there is a man in prison who is risking his life to protest the policies of his country and their treatment of prisoners and dissidents like him. Alexei Navalny was Vladimir Putin's main political rival in Russia. He built a network of supporters and activists across Russia. 
In 2018, he ran against Putin for president and opened offices nationwide. He produced YouTube videos that garnered millions of views. The Kremlin did not allow him to run, but he had already displayed the power to mobilize the people. His message is that Putin's government is corrupt and not investing in the infrastructure of the nation. He wishes to make better roads and replace crumbling hospitals. He wants a more free and fair society. This past summer, he suffered a nerve gas attack. He left the country to be treated for this poisoning, and when he returned to Russia, he was arrested and imprisoned. This once healthy 44-year-old is now showing signs of kidney failure and is at risk of heart failure. The international community, including President Biden, the French Foreign Minister, and the President of the European Commission, have all expressed concern and, at times, outrage. They claim Putin will be accountable if Navalny dies. But will this be the case? Will the state be shamed by the rest of the world into saving his life? Navalny's supporters claim that this is a slow assassination attempt. Navalny is not the only one at risk of erasure. The government has taken legal action to the nationwide network of offices that support him and have declared his anti-corruption organizations extremists. Will the power of dissent be allowed to flourish or will the people in power prevail? We are just bystanders in this drama across the ocean. Or are we? What power do we as American citizens have in such conflicts between those who rule and those who criticize and oppose? What similar dramas are taking place in our own country, in our streets, in our courtrooms, in our prisons? Navalny is a complicated person. I'm not here to say that he is the right leader for Russia. But what he is, is a man who is putting his life on the line for something he believes in. Many of those beliefs are basic freedoms that we as a nation support, at least in theory. What I am asking in the context of today's scripture reading is what is our relationship to power? What powers do we acknowledge? What powers do we submit to? What ones do we idolize? Which ones do we possess ourselves that we actually exercise? And which ones do we ignore? Which ones do we abuse? Which ones do we abdicate? Why must a man risk his life to garner the outrage against injustice that threatens the well-being of the lives of many? If we are to look closer at home this week, we might ask, why must a black man die at the hands of police before we believe that police bias and brutality is a problem that we all have a stake in? The guilty verdict of Officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd does not right the wrongs of the past. It does not resurrect the dead black men and women. It does not even ensure no more deaths. It only tells us what we should know before another person has to die to prove it to us. That we are guilty of indifference to other people's suffering and that we do not claim all the power that God bestows on us to be and to do otherwise. 
George Floyd became a martyr for a movement this summer. Chauvin could become a scapegoat unless we get real about the power we do hold as individuals and as a society and the sustainability of justice. Both men have had their lives on the line for the idea of justice in this country. But do the rest of us. So as Christians in this Easter tide, we must ask ourselves, is the only power we idolize the power to lay down one's life for others? I am the good shepherd are the words John's gospel puts into the mouth of Jesus, making an allusion to the imagery of the prophet Isaiah. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What a powerful display of love and loyalty. But dying is not the only power that Jesus professes to have. At the end of the passage, he says of his power and his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. What if power were not an all or nothing wager, but more of a dance? We do ourselves a disservice when we acknowledge only two types of power, the power to protect and sacrifice or the power to conquer and subdue. Power may instead be intersectional Perhaps you've run across this term, intersectionality, as you've been following the reckoning this country is making with its historical and present racism. Or maybe you've heard the term through our collective awakening in regards to other forms of oppression as it relates to individuals identifying as queer or transgender or various forms of xenophobia. The dictionary definition of intersectionality describes it as the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experience of marginalized individuals or groups. But to those who have struggled separately and together for justice, it is the common sense of experience. The intersection of prejudice began to be named when black women experienced sexism when they were trying to lead in the struggle for civil human rights in the 1960s, or how white and black, straight and gay women failed to find a unified strategy in, find, in fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, finding instead that race, class, and homophobia created a considerable divide to their understanding of a fair and free society for women. Imagine a Venn diagram with overlapping circles of identity from race, gender identity, sexual orientation, nationality, and religion, and disability. The more privilege you inhabit, the closer your overlapping identities intersect. The more you display characteristics of a marginalized group, the further from the center you are, where overlapping privilege concentrate power. The further on these outer edges of each circle, the more disintegration you must navigate between your various personal identities and between the groups where you may belong. Intersectionality was coined to describe the interdependency of discrimination and disadvantage, but it also reveals the exponentiality of power and privilege and the inseparableness of systems that maintain them. This is why we cannot ignore or oversimplify the power we are given, 
and the power we choose to exercise or not. Repairing the racist structure of our nation is a daunting task. It is hard to know the appropriate course of action and expect to see change in a tangled web of injustice. Interrupting white privilege will demand sacrifices from white persons. Many of us admit a deep-seated fear at this prospect. This fear stems from an inability to imagine with, and trust what comes next. Perhaps our fear comes from our narrow comprehension of true power. If power is played out only between ruler and ruled, the judge and the sentenced, the executioner and the sacrificed, then no wonder we are deprived of imagining a future that is colored by anything other than fear. But true power comes from divine love. This is what Jesus embodied in the ministry of his life, death, and resurrection. I know this is the season where we dwell on the power of Jesus' sacrifice. I do not want to discount the greatness of that act of love, nor do I want to make an idol through simplifying the Christian narrative. By his own words, Jesus suggests that through God, he knows a greater force, the power of resurrection. Jesus claims that he has the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. We must ask ourselves, when we are willing to look honestly at the powers and privileges we do possess, do we have the courage and trust to lay them down? And do we have the wisdom and love to pick them back up again? In addition to being Eastertide, it was Earth Day this week. So let us consider another scenario in which we exercise power in the very structure of our existence, as well as our daily choices. Let us consider our relationships to nature and its resources. To repair and sustain this earth, human beings must curb their unfettered consumption. This means every one of us, in how we manage our diets and waste, to how we utilize and share resources as a community, to how we travel across the globe and hold global corporations accountable. How addicted are we to the paradigm that on earth there are haves and have-nots? How deeply have our imaginations been shaped by a belief in scarcity? Now the Bible is full of celebrations of how God created abundance and goodness on this earth for all its flora and fauna and human folk. These themes are in our psalms of praise. They are in the stories of manna and the passages about care for the birds of the air and lilies of the field. And yet, when it comes to our relationship with the earth, we are stuck on one story and our eternal exile from Eden. In Genesis, God made us stewards of the earth, which we took to mean subduers of nature. We were given a blessing but we received it as an entitlement. And within that, we could see the only limit placed on us, our consumption, as evidence of scarcity. And so we ate from the forbidden fruit. We felt ashamed and passed down a legacy of shame and scarcity and subdual and subjugation to each generation that followed. Now, the ecologist and Native American writer imagines another way. 
Robin Wall Kimmerer describes a survey she takes of her college students when she asks them to name 10 recent interactions between Earth and humankind. Again and again, the students can only name negative scenarios. Young adults in America remember only the ways that human beings are destroying the planet. Do you have no positive stories of human beings interacting with the land? She asks as she prepares to teach them a lesson about the cultural differences in understanding how human beings relate to the environment. They say no. They can only see what human beings have done to the earth. They cannot imagine how human beings can be a part of a community of sustainability and a cycle of renewal within nature. Then Kimmerer tells the creation myth of her tribal people to demonstrate how culture shapes our understanding of the power we possess and how culture shapes the ways that we shape our life in order to exercise that power in relation to others and our environment. She tells the myth this way. The first human came from the sky. Her name was Sky Lady, and she fell from a hole in the sky down to an expanse of ocean waters. Now the geese saw her fall and flew underneath her to break her fall, flapping their wings hard to create resistance in the air. So she floated rather than plummeted. But they couldn't hold her for long, so a turtle swam to the surface to make a place for her to land. Now they knew that she'd need soil, so the other swimming species held a council to determine how best to help her, and each in turn dove to the bottom and brought up mud and spread it over the turtle's back. Sky Lady was an immigrant to the earth, but she did not come empty-handed. She brought a fistful of branches with fruit and with seeds from the sacred tree in the sky, and she planted these on Turtle Island. And these became plants that would feed the animals that would come to live there and herbs that would heal all the species. When she fell, Sky Lady had been pregnant, so she cultivated a garden on Turtle Island that would sustain future generations of her species and the other species that had helped create a flourishing island out of the watery abyss. Kimmerer mourns the scarcity of imagination in her students when it comes to positive interactions between people and ecosystems. How can we begin to move toward ecological and cultural sustainability if we cannot even imagine what the path feels like? If we can't imagine the generosity of geese? When the Sky Lady fell, she had only one instruction in her mind. Use your gifts and dreams for good. It was an instruction that was reinforced by the actions she saw when the geese used their gift of flight to slow her fall, or the turtle used his hard shell to help her land, or the muskrat used his claws to offer her soil. When she planted seeds, she saw it in the fruits that fed her and the animals, and in the medicines in the leaves that healed them. Too often, we reduce the Christian narrative of power to the act of ultimate sacrifice. 
This can be, of course, an important tool and necessary last result. But we cannot call for it without critique and discernment. We have a torrid history of asking for sacrifice from those who are not truly free to give up something out of their love alone. Christian masters have demanded sacrifice of slaves, while husbands and church leaders have solicited it from abused wives, or fearful parents have shamed it out of sexually questioning youth. As you consider the sacrifices you must make in this season of your life, to honor the victims of oppression, to care for the loved ones you've committed to cherish and protect, and to renew and sustain the creation God has collectively made good. Consider the many ways Jesus exercised power in his life as a son, an advocate, a teacher, a healer, a feeder, a leader, a visionary, a listener, as a friend to his disciples and to his fellow accused, and finally, as a prophetic visitor from the other side of death. Or perhaps consider his power even now as a beloved companion in prayer and a model for discipleship in love and mercy. Take a moment in the silence after the sermon or during the music that is offered and write down as many answers to the following questions. What is a way you give up your power? What is a reason you give up your power? What is a way you experience your power? How might you pick up your power again? Your answers may surprise you. When I did this exercise, my answers certainly surprised me. I suspect there will be those examples in each of the categories that you will find both positive and negative. I suppose you may place limits on some of your power and in other places wish there were no limits. As you list them, wrestle with these powers that you have, just as Jesus wrestled with his. Wrestle with the ones that you inherit from society and the ones bestowed on you by divine love. And then let Jesus's words dwell in your hearts as you discern what power you truly possess and what power you are honestly exercising. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I've received this command from my father. In the name of the creator, the Redeemer and the Sustainer. Amen.